0: Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading chapters 1 to 6 of The Story of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. CHAPTER ONE WONDERLAND The story of Greece began long, long ago in a strange wonderland of beauty. Woods and winds, fields and rivers, each had a pathway which leads upward and onward into a beautiful land. Sometimes, indeed, no path was needed, for the rivers, woods, and lone hillsides were themselves the wonderland of which I am going to tell. In the woods and winds, in the trees and rivers, dwelt the gods and goddesses whom the people of long ago worshipped. It was their presence in the world that made it so great, so wide, so wonderful. To the Hellenes, for that is the name by which the Greeks called themselves, there were eyes, living eyes in flowers, trees and water. So crowded full is the air with them, wrote one poet who lived in the far-off days, that there is no room to put in the spike of an ear of corn without touching one. When the wind blew soft, the Helenas listened to the worshipping of a voice. When it blew rough and snatched one of the children from their midst, They did not greatly grieve. The child had but gone to be the playmate of the gods. The springs sparkled clear, for in them dwelt the naiads of fresh water nymphs, with gifts as great as the river gods, who were oftentimes seen and heard amid the churning, tossing waters. In the trees dwelt the dryads, nymphs these of the forest, whom the Hellenes saw but seldom. Shy nymphs were the dryads, born each one at the birth of a tree in which she dwelt, fading away when the tree was felled, or when it withered and died. Their revels were holed in some wooded mountain, far from the haunts of men, where a human footfall heard. The frolics ceased on the instant, while each dryad sped swift for shelter to the tree of her birth. So the gods wandered through the land, filling the earth with their presence. Yet there was one lofty mountain in central Greece, named Mount Olympus, which the Hellenes believed was the peculiar home of the gods. It was this great mount that the actual roads on which the Hellenes walked each day seemed ever to lead. On the side of the mountain, green trees and dark pines clustered close. The summit reached high up beyond the clouds, so used the ancient people to tell. Here, where no human foot had ever climbed, up beyond the twinkling stars was the abode of the gods. What the Hellenists never saw with their eyes, they saw quite clear with their imagination. Within the clouds where the gods dwelt, they gazed in this strange way upon marble halls, glistening with gold and silver upon thrones too, great white thrones finer far than those which an earthly king might sit. The walls gleamed with rainbow tints, and beauty as of dawns and sunsets was painted over the vast arches of Olympus. Chapter 2 The Great God Pan The supreme god of the Hellenes was Zeus. He dwelt in the sky, yet on earth, too, he had a sanctuary amid the oak woods of Dodona. When the oak leaves stirred, his voice was heard, mysterious as the voice of the mightiest of all gods, In days long after these, Phidias, a great Greek sculptor, made an image of Zeus. The form and the face of the god he moulded into wondrous beauty, so that men gazing saw sunshine on the brow, and in his eyes gladness and warmth as of summer skies. Even so, if you watch, you may catch on the faces of those whose home is on the hillside or by the sea a glimpse of the beauty and wonder amid which they dwell. It was only in very early times that the chief sanctuary of Zeus was at Dodona. Before they had dwelt long in Hellas, the Hellenists built a great temple in the plain of Olympia to their supreme god, and named it the Olympian Temple. Here a gold and ivory statue of the god was placed, and to the quiet courts of the temple came the people singing hymns and marching in joyous procession. Zeus had stolen his great power from his father, Cronus, with the help of his brothers and sisters. To reward them for their aid, the god gave to them provinces over which they ruled in his name. Hera, Zeus chose as queen to reign with him. To Poseidon was given the sea, and a palace beneath the waves of the ocean, adorned with seaweed and with shells. Pluto was made the guardian of Hades, the dark and gloomy kingdom of the dead, beneath the earth, while Demeter was goddess of the earth, and her gifts were flowers, fruits, and bounteous harvests. Athena was the goddess of war and wisdom, yet often she was to be seen weaving or embroidering, while by her table sat her favourite bird an owl. Hermes was known as the fleet-footed, for on his feet he wore winged sandals to speed him swift on the errands of the gods. Apollo, the sun god, was the youngest of all the Olympian deities. He dwelt at Parnassus, on the eastern coast of Greece, and his sanctuary was at Delphi. The fairest of the goddesses was Aphrodite, queen of love. Her little son was named Eros, and he never grew up. Always he was a little rosy, dimpled child, carrying in his hands a bow and arrows. Many more gods and goddesses were there in the wonder days of long ago, but of only one more may I stay to tell you now. The great god Pan, protector of the shepherds and their flocks, was half man, half goat, Everyone loved this strange god, who yet oftentimes startled mortals by his wild and willful ways. When today a sudden, needless fear overtakes a crowd, and we say a panic has fallen upon it, we are using a word which we learned from the name of this old pagan god. Down by the streams, the great god Pan was sometimes seen to wonder. What was he doing, the great god Pan, down in the reeds by the river? Spreading ruin and scattering Ban, splashing and paddling with hoofs of a goat and breaking the golden lilies afloat with the dragonfly on the river. He tore out a reed the great god Pan from the deep cool bank of the river. And then sitting down, he hacked and hewed as a great, God can at the slender reed. He made it hollow and notched out holes, and lo, there was a flute ready for his use. Sweet, piercing sweet was the music of Pan's pipe as the God placed his mouth upon the holes. Blinding sweet O great god Pan, the sun on the hill forgot to die, and the lilies revived and the dragonfly came back to dream on the river. On the hillsides and in the fields of Hellas, the shepherds heard the music of their god and were merry, knowing that he was on his way to frolic and dance among them. Pan lived for many, many a long year, but there is a story which tells on the first glad Christmas Eve, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a traveler as he passed Tarentum, the chief Greek city in Italy, heard a voice crying, the great God Pan is dead. And when this same Jesus had grown to be a man and hung for love's sake on a cross, one of our own women poets sings that all the old gods of Greece fell down moaning, each from off his golden seat. All the false gods with a cry rendered up their deity. Pan, Pan was dead. And the reason that the old gods fell was that the strange man upon the cross was mightier than they. But in the days of ancient Greece, the gods were alive and strong, of that the Hellenists were very sure. Chapter 3 The Six Pomegranate Seeds Demeter, the goddess of the earth, was often to be seen in the fields in springtime. As the Greek peasants sowed their seed, they caught glimpses of her long yellow hair while she moved now here, now there, among them. It almost seemed to these simple folk as though already the bare fields were golden with the glory of harvest so bright shone the yellow hair of the goddess then they smiled hopefully one to the other knowing well that Demeter would give them a bounteous reaping time In the autumn, she was in the fields again. The peasants even dreamed that they saw her stoop to bind the sheaves. Certainly, she had been known to visit their barns when the harvest was safely garnered. And stranger still, it was whispered among the women folk that the great earth mother had entered their homes, had stood close beside them as they baked bread to feed their hungry households. It was in the beautiful island of Sicily, which lies in the Mediterranean Sea, that the goddess had her home. Here she dwelt with her daughter Persephone, whom she loved more dearly than words can tell. Persephone was young and fair, so fair that she seemed as one of the spring flowers that leaped into life when her mother touched the earth with her gracious hands. Early as the dawn, the maiden was in the fields with Demeter, to, to gather violets while the dew still lay upon them, to dance and sing with her playmates. At other times she would move gravely by the side of her mother to help her in her quiet labours. All this time, Pluto, king of Hades, was living in his gloomy kingdom underground, longing for some fair maiden to share his throne. But there was not one who was willing to leave the glad light of the sun. No, not though Pluto offered her the most brilliant gems in his kingdom. One day, The dark king came up out of the shadows, riding his chariot of gold, drawn by immortal horses. Swifter was their pace than that of any mortal steeds. Persephone was in a meadow with her playfellows when the king drew near. The maiden stood knee-deep amid the meadow grass and, stooping, plucked the fragrant sweet flowers all around her, hyacinth, lilies, roses, and pale violets. Pluto saw the group of happy maidens, Beautiful each one as the day in spring. But it was Persephone who charmed him more than any other. She shall be my queen and share my throne, muttered the gloomy king to himself. Then, for he knew that to woo the maiden would be vain, Pluto seized Persephone in his arms and bore her weeping to his chariot. Swift as an arrow, the immortal steed sped from the meadow where Persephone's playmates were left terror-stricken and dismayed. On and on flew the chariot. Pluto was in haste to reach Hades, ere Demeter should miss her daughter. A river lay across his path, but of this the king recked naught, for his steeds would bear him across without so much as lessening their speed. But as the chariot drew nearer, The waters began to rise as though driven by a tempest. Soon they were lashed to such fury that Pluto saw that it was vain to hope to cross the other side. So he seized his scepter, and in a passion he struck three times upon the ground. At once a great chasm opened in the earth, and down into the darkness plunged the horses. A moment more, and Pluto was in his own kingdom, Persephone by his side. When the king seized the maiden in the meadow and bore her to his chariot, She had cried aloud to Zeus, her father, to save her. But Zeus had made no sign, nor had any heard save Hecate, a mysterious goddess whose face was half-hidden by a veil. None other heard, yet her piteous cry echoed through the hills and woods until at length the faint echo reached the ear of Demeter. A great pain plucked at the heart of the mother as she heard, and throwing the blue hood off her shoulders and loosening her yellow hair, Demeter set forth, swift as a bird, to seek for Persephone until she found her. To her own home first she hastened, for there, she thought, she might find some trace of the child she loved so well. But the rooms were desolate as an empty bird's nest or an empty fold. The mother's eyes searched eagerly in every corner, but nothing met her gaze save the embroidery Persephone had been working on, a gift against the return of her mother with labor all to be in vain. It lay as she had flung it down in careless mood, and over it crept a spider spinning his delicate web across the maiden's unfinished work. For nine days, Demeter wandered up and down the earth, carrying blazing torches in her hands. Her sorrow was so great that she would neither eat nor drink, no, not even ambrosia, or a cup of sweet nectar, which are the meat and drink of the gods. Nor would she wash her face. On the tenth day, Hecate came towards her, but she had only heard the voice of the maiden and could not tell Demeter who had carried her away. Onward sped. The unhappy mother, sick at heart for hope unfulfilled, onward until she reached the sun. Here she learned that it was Pluto who had stolen her daughter and carried her away to this gloomy kingdom. Then in her despair, Demeter left All her duties undone, and a terrible famine came upon the earth. The dry seed remained hidden in the soil. In vain the oxen drew the plowshare through the furrows. As the days passed, the misery of the people grew greater and greater, until faint and starving they came to Demeter, and besought her once again to bless the earth. But sorrow had made the heart of the goddess hard, and she listened, unmoved to the entreaties of the hungry folk, saying only that until her daughter was found, she could not care for their griefs long, weary days to meet her journeyed over land and sea to seek Persephone, but at length she came back to Sicily. One day, as she walked along the bank of a river, the water gurgled gladly, and a little wave carried a girdle almost to her feet. Demeter stooped to pick it up, and lo, it was the girdle that Persephone had worn on the day that she was carried away. The maiden had flung it into the river as the chariot had plunged into the abyss, hoping that it might reach her mother. The girdle could not help Demeter to recover her daughter, yet how glad she was to have found it, how safe she treasured it. At length, broken hearted indeed, Demeter went to Zeus to beg him to give her back her daughter. If she returns, the people shall again have food and plenteous harvest, she cried. And the god, touched with the grief of the mother and the sore distress of the people, promised that Persephone should come back to earth if she had eaten no food while she had lived in the gloomy kingdom of Hades. No words can tell the joy with which Demeter hastened to Hades. Here she found her daughter with no smile upon her sweet face, but only tears of desire for her mother and dear light of the sun. But alas, that very day, Persephone had eaten six pomegranate seeds, for every seed that she had eaten, she was doomed to spend a month each year with Pluto, but for the other six months, every year, mother and daughter would dwell together, and as they clung to one another, they were joyous and content. So for six glad months each year Demeter rejoiced, for her daughter was by her side, and ever it was spring and summer while Persephone dwelt on the earth. But when the time came for her to return to Hades, Demeter grew ever cold and sad, and the earth too became weary and grey. It was autumn and winter in the world until Persephone returned once more. Chapter 4 The Birth of Athena One day Zeus was ill. To us, it is strange to think of the gods as suffering the same pains as mortals suffer, but to the Hellenes, it seemed quite natural. Zeus was ill. His head ached so severely that he bade all the gods assemble in Olympus to find a cure for his pain. But not one of them, not even Apollo, who was god of medicine as well as sun god, could ease the suffering deity. After a time, Zeus grew impatient with the cruel pain and resolved at all costs to end it, so he sent for his strong son Hephaestus and bade him take an axe and cleave open his head. Hephaestus did not hesitate to obey, and no sooner had the blow descended than from his father's head sprang forth Athene, the goddess of war and wisdom. She was clad in armor of pure gold, and held in her hand a spear, poised as though for battle. From her lips rang a triumphant war-song. The assembled gods gazed in wonder, not unmixed with fear at the warrior-goddess, who had so suddenly appeared in their midst But she herself stood unmoved before them, while a great earthquake shook the land and proclaimed to the dwellers in Hellas the birth of a new god. Athene was a womanly goddess as well as a warlike one. She presided over all kinds of needlework, and herself loved to weave beautiful tapestries. Soon after the birth of the goddess, a man named Cesrops came to the province in Greece, which was afterwards known as Attica. Here he began to build a city, which grew so beautiful beneath his hands that the gods in Olympus marveled. When it was finished, each of the gods wished to choose a name for the city Cessrops had built. As only one name could be used, the gods met in a great council to determine what was to be done. Soon, one by one, each gave up his wish to name the city save only Athena and Poseidon. Zeus decreed that Athena and Poseidon should create an object which would be of use to mortals. To name the city and to care for it should be the prize of the one who produced the more useful gift. Poseidon at once seized his three pronged fork or trident, which was the sign that he was ruler of the sea. As he struck the ground with it, lo, a noble horse sprang forth, the first horse that the gods had seen. As Poseidon told the gods in how many ways, The beautiful animal could be of use to mortals. They thought that Athene would not be able to produce anything that could help men more. When she quietly bade the council to look at an olive tree, the gods laughed her to scorn. But they soon ceased to laugh for Athene told them how the wood, the fruit, the leaves, all were of use, and not only so, but that the olive tree was the symbol of peace, while the horse was the symbol of war, and war did ever more harm than good to mortals. So the gods decided, That it was Athene who had won the right to name the city, and she gave it her own name of Athene, and the citizens ever after worshipped her as their peculiar goddess. Of this city, which we now know as Athens, you will hear much in this story. Chapter 5. The Two Weavers Athene could not only wield the sword, she could also ply the needle. In these olden days there lived in Greece a Lydian maid who could weave with wondrous skill. So beautiful were the tapestries she wrought that her fame spread far and wide. Lords and ladies both came from distant towns to see the maiden's skillful hands at work. Arachne, for that was the maiden's name, lived in a cottage with her parents. They were poor folk, and had often found it hard to earn their daily bread. But now their daughter was famous for her embroidery, their troubles were at an end. For not only lords and ladies, but merchants too, were glad to pay well to secure the young maiden's exquisite designs. And so all would have been well with Arachne and her parents, Had not the foolish girl become vain of her work? Soon her companions began to weary of her, for of nothing could she talk save her own deft fingers, of her own beautiful embroideries. Those who loved Arachne grew sad as they listened to her proud words and warned her that pride ever goes before a fool. But Arachne only tossed her pretty head as she listened to the wisdom of older folks. Nor did she cease to boast, even saying that she could do more wonderful work than the goddess Athene. Not once, but many times did Arachne say that she wished she might test her skill against that of the goddess, and should a prize be offered, proudly she declared that it was she who would win it. From Olympus Athene heard the vain words of the maiden. So displeased was she of her boldness that she determined to go to see Arachne, and if she did not repent, to punish her. She changed herself into an old white-haired dame and came to earth. Leaning upon a star, she knocked at the door of the cottage where Arachne lived and was bidden to enter. Arachne was sitting in the midst of those who had come to see and to praise her work. Soon she began to talk, as she was quick to do, of her skill and how she believed that her work surpassed in the beauty Any that Athene could produce. The old woman pushed her way through the group that surrounded the maid, and laying her hand upon the shoulder of Arachne, she spoke kindly to her. Be more modest, my child, she said, lest the anger of the gods descend upon you, lest Athene take you at your word and bid you to the contest you desire. Impatiently, Arachne shook off the stranger's hand and answered, Who are you to dare to speak to me? I would Athene might hear my words now. And come to test her skill against mine, she would soon see that she had a rival in Arachne. Athene frowned at the insolence of the maiden. Then the little company were startled to see the old woman suddenly change into the glorious form of the goddess Athene. As they gazed, they were afraid and fell at her feet. But Arachne did not worship the goddess. Foolish Arachne looked boldly in her face and asked if she had come to accept her challenge. Athene's only answer was to sit down before an empty loom. Soon each in silence, had begun to weave a wondrous tapestry. Swift and more swift moved the fingers of the weavers, while the group of strangers, gathered now near the door, watched the webs as they grew and grew apace. Into her tapestry... Athene was weaving the story of her contest with Poseidon for the city of Cesrops. The olive tree, the horse, the gods in the council, all seemed to live as they appeared on the web of the goddess. The tapestry woven by Arachne was also beauteous as her work was one. To be. In it you saw the sea, with waves breaking over a great bull, to whose horns clung a girl named Europa, and Europa's curls blew free in the wind. At length Athene rose from the loom, her work complete. Arachne, too, laid down her spindle, and as she turned to look upon the tapestry of the goddess, her courage suddenly failed. A glance had been enough to show her that her skill was as nothing before the wonder and beauty of Athene's work. Too late had the maiden repented that she defied the goddess, in her despair, she seized a rope and tied it round her neck to hang herself. But the goddess saw what Arachne meant to do, and at once she changed her into a spider, bidding her from henceforth never cease to spin. And so when you see a spider weaving its beautiful embroidery on a dewy morning in the garden. Or when you find a delicate web in your lumber room, you will remember how Athene punished poor, foolish Arachne in the days of old. Chapter 6 the Purple Flowers Apollo, the youngest and most beautiful of the gods, dearly loved a lad named Hyacinthus. Ofttimes he would leave the other gods sipping nectar in Mount Olympus. Ofttimes he would forsake the many beautiful temples in which he was worshipped on earth, that he might be free to wander through the woods with his little friend. For Hyacinthus was only a merry little lad, who loved to roam over hill and dale, and when the fancy seized him to hunt in the woods. Apollo was never happier than when he was with the boy. Sometimes he would go hunting with him, and then Hyacinthus was merrier than ever, for the world seemed more full of brightness when the sun god was by his side. Sometimes the friends would walk together over hill and dale, Followed by the dogs Hyacinthus loved so well. One day they had wandered far, and the little lad was tired, so he flung himself down in a grassy meadow to rest, Apollo by his side. But the sun god was soon eager for a game. He sprang to his feet crying, Hyacinthus, let us play at quoits before the shadow fall. Coits were flat, heavy discs, and the game was won by the player who could fling the quoits the farthest through the air. Hyacinthus was ever willing to do as Apollo wished, and the game was soon begun. After a throwing of more than usual skill and strength, the friends laughed gleefully. Oh, but it was good to be alive in such a happy world, thought Hyacinthus. And Apollo, as he looked at the merry face of the little lad, rejoiced that he was not sitting in the cold marble halls of Olympus, but was here on the glade-green earth. By and by, while they still played, Zephyrus, the god of the south wind, came fleeting by. He saw the sun god and his little playmate, full of laughter and joy. Then an ugly passion, named Jealousy, awoke in the heart of the god, for he too loved the little hunter Hyacinthus, and would fain have been in Apollo's place. Zephyrus tarried a while to watch the friends, once as Apollo flung his disc high into the air, the wind god sent a gust from the south, which blew the coit aside. He meant only to annoy Apollo, but Hyacinthus was standing by, so that the quoit struck him violently on the forehead. The lad fell to the ground and soon he was faint from loss of blood. In vain Apollo tried to staunch the wound. Nothing he could do was any use. Little by little, the boys strength the bed away. The sun god knew that the lad would never hunt or play again on earth. Hyacinthus was dead. The grief of the god was terrible. His tears fell fast as he mourned for the playmate he had loved so well. At length he dried his tears and took his lyre, and as he played he sang a last song to his friend. And all the woodland creatures were silent that they might listen to the love song of the god. When the song was ended, Apollo laid aside his lyre, and, stooping, touched with his hand the blood drops of the lad, and lo, they were changed into a cluster of beautiful purple flowers which have ever since been named Hyacinths, after the little lad Hyacinthus. Year by year, as the spring sun shines, the wonderful purple of the Hyacinth is seen. Then you, who know the story, think of the days of long ago, when the sun god lost his little friend, and a cluster of purple flowers bloomed upon the spot where he lay.